Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. If you go onto Paula Sleer's website, you'll learn much about her. You'll see that she's an award-winning and highly recognized and influential journalist. You'll see also that she's the founder and CEO of Newshound Media, an international media production company that also manages a network of stringers across the Middle East and Africa, and that she's Russia's today's Middle East bureau chief. If you scroll down a little bit more and spend a minute or two on her page, you'll be able to see a YouTube of Paula reporting live from the eastern Ukraine. In that video, you'll see Paula wearing a a bulletproof vest, lying flat on the ground in what looks like a field of reeds, and you'll hear shots overhead. A few seconds later, you'll also hear an explosion in the background. Paula despite being in a genuinely life-threatening situation, maintains her professional demeanor throughout while she continues to report on what is happening around her. Paula, welcome again. (laughs) Um, Paula, I was uh, kind of like intrigued to see what was going to happen next. In that particular slot, you're obviously reporting for Russia today on the fighting in the eastern Ukraine, and you're in a real live war situation. How often do you find yourself in that kind of life-threatening situation? Well, Sharice, thanks very much for having me here, and it's really a pleasure. Um, Let me just tell you two funny stories about the scenario you're painting. We were crawling through the grass, and we landed up finding some shelter behind a train. And the Ukrainian army was on the opposite side, and we were literally lying underneath the train as as the rockets were coming across. And we managed after about half an hour to crawl away, and we got to a little bit of a sanctuary, and we crawled into this room, and there was a a young Ukrainian making Molotov cocktails. And he said to me, oh, ma'am, (laughs) ma'am, please, please, let me find you a seat. And then he gave me a seat. He said, would you like a cup of tea? (laughs) And I was like, no, you look rather occupied, you know. (laughs) Although a cup of tea might have been just what you needed at that moment. <laughs> and then, um, and then eventually we thought we should go. So we crawled through the grass and there were snipers everywhere. Um, and for some reason, although, you know, when I think about it in retrospect, it wasn't exactly clever. I was crawling first and the cameraman was behind me and he started talking to somebody in Russian and they were screaming at each other and they both started laughing. So I was screaming back at the cameraman, what's going on? And he says, no, that soldier over there, he's telling me not to film him because his sister is in Italy. And if she sees him on TV, she's going to kill him. So I screamed back, please tell him my parents are in South Africa. And if they see me crawling through a field with snipers, they're going to kill me. So this hardened war journalist that I like to pretend that I am, the story goes out that evening on the news, South African journalists are afraid her parents are going to kill her if they see her in a war zone. So, but, um, you know, to answer your question, it has been... It wasn't necessarily a career path I had intentionally gone upon. I, I used to work, as you know, for the SABC. But it has been amazing, amazingly adventurous and it's been a huge privilege to to work and report on stories that are happening in our time and that are the headline stories of the day. So I do often find myself in war zone situations. I'm I'm here in South Africa because you know you're talking to my father and we came my sister and I as, I as you mentioned to see the show. I leave now and I go to Paris where there are demonstrations happening. Although as as we were waiting to come online and to talk to you, the news broke that there had been a terror attack in London. So on the one hand, I smile and I laugh about the privilege of being able to report in war zones. But on the other hand, it's a sad reflection of the world in which we live and the fact that global terrorism seems to be on the up. Paula, 
you go uh, just to go back. Firstly, I have to ask where the camera was at that particular moment because because it was you said it was We tell the cameraman make us look thin, and he's got a camera all over as I'm crawling. It wasn't amazing. You were crawling. Okay, I, I, I can't leave the story yet because I have to clarify this for myself. Um, there are shots. You hear an explosion. You say that's an explosion, but the cameraman seems to be. It's almost like he's standing, which means he's not protected. So you know, both of us are not protected at different times because. On the one hand, there's so many things that are going through your mind when you're in that situation. It's the bulletproof that you're wearing. And to be honest, these bulletproof jackets don't always provide maximum protection. And we had a situation, and it's not only in Ukraine, it's happening all over the world today, that people, combatants, are deliberately targeting journalists. They see us as kind of soldiers in the information Mm. war and legitimate targets. So that's a whole different discussion is whether you protect yourself with a jacket. So what's going through my mind is, you know, you want a good picture, but you don't want to be killed at the same time. No (laughs) stories worth your life. So there were different times when I would stand up in the cameraman and I would, you know, make a shot of things and just hope like hell, that's not the moment the sniper takes aim. And there are other times when we often use small cameras. When we're in a war zone, sometimes we even film with a GoPro, which is a very, very small camera that sometimes I will put on my helmet or the cameraman will put on his helmet. And so you can see um, the shot from that kind of angle. Right. But in the particular incident that you're talking about, he had stood up for a he, second. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Because yeah, right. he's, he's got that you yes, and I'm he, and thinking, he's got that kind of angle the at the top. <laughs> <laughs> and how much live stuff? Okay. All right. We are going to talk about the world in which you find yourself. And we are going to go back to the, the fact that, you know, that, that there has just been a... Um, a terrorist, we're assuming a terrorist attack yes, in the, London. Yes, the, um, the, the, the British government has declared a terrorist attack. So, but before we go then, you also have reported from Syria. And you must see very heartbreaking things. How do you deal with it? So, I mean, I think it's appropriate maybe just to ask my dad as well, because people always ask me that question is, you know, how do you cope with what you see? And I always answer and I say, and I'll answer in a bit more detail in a moment. But on the one hand, it's much easier for me because I'm in the situation so I can register what the danger is and to to be completely honest, Charisse, you know, it's not 24-7. It's not that I'm in... The, the, the situation that any second of 24 hours I can be injured. We often go in, we, we report and we pull out. So the real brave people are the people who are living in that situation. The other, the other brave people, and I mention it, Dad, not just because you're in the studio, <laughs> but are my parents. You know, they're sitting here in South Africa. They're not in the situation. And I know, for example, mm. that, that, that you've probably aged quite a lot <laughs> since I started working for Russian well, TV. Well, uh, let's I bring you in, Lionel. I just want to tell you one story. This happened in the <clears throat> Lebanese war. <coughs> Sorry. Paula phoned me. She said to me, um, she's on the border of Israel and Lebanon. I said, Paula, it's a very bad line. There's a lot of interference. No, no, she said, don't worry. It's just the rockets going <laughs> over. Uh, so, obviously, you know, Paula, Paula jokingly says, you know, don't show this because my parents in South Africa are going to kill me. What is it like for you to know that your daughter is there, wherever there's – she's drawn to the fact that, you know, you're hearing shooting in the background, Paula's going to be there? Quite frankly, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah. It's nerve-wracking. You know, Paula phones me up and said, Dad, don't worry. I said, I'm worrying already. <laughs> Where said, are you? Yes, yeah, I'm going to Afghanistan. You know what happens? 
what happens is that the cameramen don't have to tell their wives where they go um, because they're behind the scenes. And I always have the dilemma of do I tell my parents where I'm going to go before I go or do I rather tell them when I come back? You know, the last week I was in Syria. <laughs> in as Afghanistan or Syria. the problem is I'm on air. And I think I think with Dad, I think, you know, if, if you suddenly saw me pop up on your TV screen in Syria and you thought I was sitting at home somewhere else, you know, in London, you, you would get more of a fright. Am I not right? You are right. You are right. I've grey. I've grey and aged, I mean. But Lionel, there's also a sense of pride. Well, you know, it's pride I can do without. <laughs> so unequivocal support for you from, Thanks, from your dad. dad. Um, but but should we say, let me say something. You asked about, like, how does one cope with it? I think it is hard. Um, but to make it relevant also to our listeners, I don't think it's just hard for me as a journalist. I think as a society, both those of us who are reporting the news and people who are consuming news, whether it's people on social media, whether it's people watching news on television, I think we are so front on with the bad images we see that I think all of us, whether we, you don't have to go to Syria anymore to be slightly mm. traumatized by what is happening in Syria. And as a journalist, we face the problem, how do we still get people to care about stories? How do we still show them a story? You know, in the past, you would show a story that has shock value, and that would make people wake up and say, hang on, half a million people have been killed in Syria. The genocide cannot continue. But we're becoming more and more desensitized with time. And I sometimes am afraid that we show pictures that are no longer shocking because we've already seen pictures of people being beheaded online. Mm. So, and, and one of the conversations that are happening in journalism circles is not just post-traumatic stress for journalists, but is post-traumatic stress that's happening to video editors who mm. are sitting in London, who are mm. sitting in Israel, who are sitting in South Africa and who are receiving all these images. And they're just in their home environment having to cut and edit and put them together. And then that lends itself to the conversation of the viewers, of the people who are sitting at their home in, here in Johannesburg. And they watch Russian television and see these horrific mm. images. It has to be having an impact on all of us. Mm. It is. I think you're right. Pa- Paula, I want to ask you, you talk about Syria. You've been in Afghanistan, Lebanon. One of the places, though, that most foreign correspondents love to be in is in Israel or West Bank to report on the Israeli conflict. And um, in spite of all the terrors that take place, not only in the Middle East, but in Africa, there seems to be a disproportionate amount of coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Would you agree with that? And if so, why? Look, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, it's an excellent question, and I always get asked it. Let me just go back a few steps and say that if you were asking me that question maybe a few years ago before the Arab Spring, I would definitely say that the situation in Israel was so that you had all the major networks with officers there. The Arab Spring happened, and the news story shifted. A lot of the crews that were based in Israel went to Egypt, and then Libya happened, and, and so we kind of shifted around. Parallel to that, there is a financial crisis happening, particularly in newsrooms. So if we look at the Israel example, you don't find that all these big networks have huge bureaus now in Jerusalem like they did in the past because they simply cannot afford it. Parallel that, so on the one hand, you've got the news is kind of shifting elsewhere in the world. You've got um, broadcast organizations going through some kind of financial cutbacks and in parallel that with social media that I touched on. Why does a, a broadcaster need to send with all the the expenses and the security risks associated to it, why do they need to send a team to Syria when you could have somebody holding up a mobile phone and taking images? So all of that is happening and that is the context in which your question fits in. 
having said that, I do agree with you that still there seems to be a disproportionate amount of coverage that that comes out of out of the Palestinian conflict. I think part of the answer is that Israel is is a good democracy. You can criticize Israel, and I criticize Israel a lot. But to be fair, journalists can operate freely in Israel, and that is a a, a quality that the Israelis need to need to be proud of. And you don't want to change. But the flip side of that is that it allows journalists to report uh, report to the extent that you can't report on human rights abuses in China, to the extent that you can't report of what's going on with the air in Syria vis-a-vis the Syrian government or in Iraq vis-a-vis the Iraqi government. So it's that flip side of democracy. So, so I think that's part of the answer is that there is a freedom in Israel to report in Israel. I think there's always been a fascination, though, with what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think it's because Israel is a global story being the, the center of three of the world's main religions. I think Often, the Israeli-Palestinian story is a deflection away what's happening elsewhere. So Arab countries, perhaps rather than focus attention on internal criticisms that people have against the government, the governments that often own the media would rather deflect attention away from internal politics and focus on the Palestinian struggle and let's find a common enemy and that will always, always be Israel and focus on that. So I think there's a lot of those factors at play. You speak about Israel being an open democracy where journalists have the ability to do and report as they like. There, there is a rumor, and I'm not sure if it's an urban legend or not, and I'd like your insight into it, that many journalists go to Israel. They have a very popular bar in which they reside and don't actually go outside of it but report on what is purportedly happening outside or do you think that's true? Do you mean what's happening in the West Bank, that mm. they're not going enough to mm. the West Bank? No, I'm, I mean... I think there's an element of truth in what you're saying, but on the whole, I don't think it's true. And I'll quickly explain why I say both. I think that most foreign correspondents who come to Israel, and I think this is the nature of being a journalist, is that you're often exposed to two sides of the story. And 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 so you become more sensitive to both sides. And I think most foreign correspondents coming to, to Israel become already perhaps more sensitive to the Palestinian side. I think the Palestinian side of the story lends itself more to... Uh, to the to the narrative that the Palestinians are the victims, it's harder to for Israelis to get journalists empathetic to their side of the story. Something very basic, just the pictures. You know, you have pictures of Israeli tanks and soldiers in every conflict, and then the inevitably the pictures that come out of the Palestinian side, if you look at the last Gaza war, are going to be the suffering of often women and children. So, the Israelis are up against that initially. I think, though, why, you're st- wh- why this urban legend exists is that there, there is a joke in Israel, but this, isn't, this is a true story, where a journalist who I'm not familiar who it was once said, you know, this is the best conflict to cover because I can go in the morning across the border into Gaza, I can cover a war, and in the evening I can be back in time to have a glass of wine in Tel Aviv. And it's true. It's, in inverted commas, a very comfortable conflict to cover. Mm-hmm. I can tell you because, as you mentioned, I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and and Syria. It's not very comfortable there. You're literally sleeping outside in sandbags. Mm. It's it, you're really roughing it up. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and and forgive me, I'm not trying to make light of it, mm. but to answer your question, can be again inverted commas a comfortable conflict to cover, and hence the idea that a foreign correspondent will come, base themselves in Jerusalem, perhaps go across the border for a few hours to the West Bank, report a little bit, and then come back to their five-star hotel. Paula, we're running out of time, but I do want to touch on what we started with, which is kind of the world in which we live. Do you see an increase of fundamentalism and 
I mean, do you have any thoughts? So while I was talking to you a moment ago, I was thinking, even though I'm saying to you that there's so much more terrorism happening and all, all of us, journalists and viewers, are becoming more traumatized, I am at the same time wary of the flip side, which is a 100 years ago, we didn't have this kind of technology. So perhaps all of this was happening and we just didn't have the means to broadcast it and let the entire international community be informed. I do think that global terror is on the increase. At the same time, having said that, I don't think we should exaggerate it. So, for example, Islamic, the um, is um, ISIS and the Islamic State, they are losing in Syria and Iraq. And the prognosis is that by the end of the year, they will not exist in those countries anymore. So, so, so let's put it in context. Having said that, though, the scary part is that a way of them furthering their goals of creating this caliphate is now to create a virtual caliphate and to create fear. That's part of their goal, not just physical caliphate. And the way they do that is by sending their their convertees or their foot soldiers into Europe. The latest figures that have come out of 50,000 terrorists, according to European security agencies, are said to be inside Europe. And these are figures they've gone public mm. with. And they've filtered in through the refugees. Mm. So, yes, there is a huge threat about global terror. But I don't want us to live in a world in which we are terrified <laughs> to go out the front door. I mean, it makes me think, I was saying to my father that I'm, I'm, as I mentioned to you, I'm going from South Africa to Paris. And my father was like, well, Dad, what was your reaction? <laughs> You're going to such a dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he used to say that to me when I used to tell him I'm going to Syria. Yeah. Now, you know, I'll, Paris, is yeah, the, Paris would have been a Syria. place. <laughs> exactly. He would have said to me a few years ago, I'm so happy you're going to Paris. Now, where is safe today? I mean, I say that as an open-ended question. Again, with the preface, let's not let's not make ourselves so so afraid that we don't do anything. So yes, global terror is on the increase, but let's not let's not exaggerate it that it takes over our lives. We have to end it on that point, which I think is a nice, positive way to end the interview. And it's been absolutely a pleasure and a treat and an honour to have the Paula and her dad, Lionel Sleer. The, father-daughter journalist team <laughs> kind of sharing their experiences, different though they may be. So thank you to both of you for coming in. Thank you. And Shabbat Shalom and Shana Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. I hope you have a safe year ahead and please, please consider your dad when you take I your do, next assignment. And this your is, dad and mum. And Cherise, thank you. This is a dad. I think this is the first interview where we've both shared an interview and been interviewed together. So thank yeah. you for that. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. After the break, I speak to Adital, Israeli cellist.